Welcome to Diary of a High Net Worth Investor with me, Graham Rowan, Chairman of Beaufort Private Equity. Our community of almost 800 high net worth families in 37 countries have a unique set of opportunities, but also some significant challenges. In this show, we look at how to maximize the good stuff while managing the risks and the downsides. Who knows, we might even make investing feel like fun. My guest today doesn't do anything by halves. With his wife, Leanne, he made his first foray into property investing after a Robert Kiyosaki event and went on to become the biggest private landlord in Scotland. From there, it was a short step into property development and construction before we expanded into mergers and acquisitions, where the Carling Group's been involved in a billion pounds worth of deals in the UK and Europe, with a focus on distinct but fragmented sectors like technology, energy, construction and healthcare. He also runs GCC Equity Partners with offices in Dubai, the UK, the United States and mainland Europe, where businesses with ambitious leaders can fast track their growth by leveraging the company's network, expertise and knowledge of other international markets. In his spare time, he runs United Capital, which is busily consolidating the fragmented UK decarbonisation sector with a view to winning lucrative government projects in green and renewable projects. His name is Graham Carling. Graham, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Good to be here. I want to start by taking you back to those dark days of the financial crisis around 2008. You were inspired by the man who I regard as the greatest financial educator of the 21st century. What did you learn from Kiyosaki and how did you go about taking massive action to implement what you'd picked up from him? Well, I actually read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad back in 2002, three, I think it was. And that was just on the, the back of I'd had uh, three business failures, small businesses where I'd started myself. Um, I was at uh, a, a low end, really. I was skint, you know, had no money. I'd lost everything I had. Uh, my ego was dented, pride bruised, and you know, all that stuff. And um, I, I remember catching the tail end of an Oprah Winfrey show, and she was interviewing this guy called Robert Kiyosaki, and, his, um, and he was promoting or talking about the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I read the book, and, and, and honestly, for me, it was a real light bulb moment in, in my life, actually. Um, it, it was one of these ones where, I mean, it was so simple. You look back now, uh, I mean, it's a timeless message. That book, it still is as relevant today as it was back then. And I think he wrote it maybe 10 years before that as well. I, can't, I, I don't know exactly when it came out, but it was a few years before. So what it done for me was it, it really... As simple as it was, it, it taught me, it told me that I really didn't know much about money, the financial system, the markets, how how money, debt, taxes, and how, how all of that stuff worked. I just was not brought up in that environment. So what I'd done was it was really the opening of the door for me to go and learn and find out more. And from a very, from a point where, where I was at, which was, probably my, one of my lowest ebbs, certainly financially. Um, it gave me the, I, I was able to then, okay, it gave me a bit of light and a bit of hope and uh, opened the door for me to go and learn more and become more involved 
And and I'd done that for, 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 for a few years. So from 2002, I had to go back to, you know, a job just over broke, you know, mainstream employment. And um, what that done for me was, uh, um, but I continued to immerse myself in financial education. I needed to, I needed to get into it. And I really loved it. I was learning. It was, it was different voices. It was different messages uh, from different people, but people that had been successful. I really didn't have that pre, uh, prior to, to, to that. And that's one of the biggest sort of, uh, problems I think for uh, most people have of taking advice from family and friends and people that, that, uh, have never really are not where you want to be. So that gave me hope. It gave me inspiration. It gave me enlightenment. And uh, I just embarked on a, a campaign of financial education for myself. Then um, when I met my, my, my girlfriend at the time, she became my wife, Leanne, she, she really loved it and, and enjoyed the whole aspect of that as well. So what it done was when the financial crisis came, you know, no, having prepared myself for that, and don't get me wrong, it was still, you know, terrifying uh, to take that first step when, you know, we were in good jobs, you know, we had every reason not to leave our work again and embark on um, another crazy idea that I may have had, you know, uh, when everyone else was getting out. What we done was we, we had enough. The time was right. There was an opening. There was property for the first time in a decade plus was on discount. There were some good deals to be had. There was still some money available early 2008. You know, you were able, there were still same day remortgages and stuff that we didn't know about so much beforehand, but they were still there. So we were able to catch the tail end of some of the easier money and that managed to get us in uh, in the game. So property was at a discount. We've seen an opportunity. We prepared. I prepared myself mentally, emotionally, and uh, I suppose financially, I was in a far better place to embark on, uh, embark on, on, on that next step. And um, so that was really where, where we were. When people were fearful, we were kind of in a good position mentally to go and take advantage of that. And, and that's what we've done. Amazing. And I think um, a lot of people associate Robert with with property and, and getting into property investing. But I mean, to be honest, the reason I'm in, in private equity today, I would probably credit him with because he also talked about the fact that you know he owned like gold mines and things and that he got into these private placements. He was on the other side of the transaction, whereas you know, if you're a member of the public, you have to wait for shares to float on a stock market before you can buy them. But if you get in there early with the founders and so on, you can be part of that uh, private equity movement. And when you eventually go public, that's your big payday. You know, so he got me thinking about how do I get on the other side of this transaction? Um, yeah. A bit like being the franchisor rather than the franchisee, you know, and it was that yeah. kind of thinking that I would credit with him. But I mean, if you think about it, millions of people read that book. I'm sure 10 of thousands in Scotland read it, but none of them became the biggest landlord in Scotland. So what was it you did? What was it about your thinking? What was it about your, the steps you took that enabled you to go for so much growth and acquire so many properties? Well, we needed to believe in ourselves. And I think what, what happened, we, we, did, we had the belief and we committed to it. So we had this vision, this focus. Look, we're either right or wrong here. If we're wrong, and that, that goes for anything. You know, I, I might be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. So I, we had to commit ourselves to going for it with if we really believed in it. So it wasn't just one or two properties. We needed to keep on going. And what we found 
uh, and it's still the same today. And and we, we and we enjoy uh, enjoy uh, that. Well, we we kind of go against the, the 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 running of where people are going. You know, we kind of do look at look at where there's an opportunity and and try and grab that, even though that's going against the tide. Where you know people are getting out, we're getting in. So I, I don't know. You know, it's it's just how I am. It's just a way I wanted to I wanted to commit to it. We we seen the opportunity and we wanted to give it everything. But what with it when everybody was getting out, it just opened up so many opportunities. So as, as then of course the the finance market changed. It was more difficult. People that we were speaking to, we'd go to these property seminars and events, and people then were saying, "Well, we're just gonna we're gonna sit on the sidelines now and see what happens." You know that. The, the the environment, the world was full of fear and doom-mongering and, and all of that stuff and everybody was uncertain to, as to what was going on. But we we seen that as an opportunity then, that there was less competition, people were sitting, waiting, sitting on the sidelines. We said, look, we're, we're in the game here. We, we need to keep, keep committing and keep moving forward. So as the finance, you know, things became a bit more tricky or difficult, we just went and we had to keep on moving ourselves. You know, whatever way the wind was blowing, we just adjusted our sails, if you like, and and went in that direction, but never stopped moving forward. So there was no way we were stopping. We just started. A lot of people that had been in before us, uh, just because they had an easy time of it, if you like, in terms of uh, funding, uh, we did. We never had an easy time. We only had you know the, the tail end of, if you like, of it. So we we only ever knew hard work and uh, solving puzzles. So, you know, for example, so we would go and the banks would reduce their loan-to-value amount. Um, they, it was more stringent in terms of stress testing on uh, to, to, to get mortgages. With it. So we had to come up and go and find um, equity in order there were great deals we were getting. So we had to go to, you know, go and try and find the equity, not stop and wait, go and find the equity to put in to get the deals um, to keep progressing. And that's all we done, we just went and expanded um, our uh, our network, our the, the people that we, you know. And if you have great deals and you can get good deals, it, it was you know you you'll get the money. You know what I mean? Because there are, there are you know people need good investments. So we just went with that blind belief, and that's still what we do to this day. We just we just keep we keep going and adjusting ourselves. And just put some figures on that for us. How, how how big did your property empire become in terms of units that you uh, were controlling? Well, we got to over three hundred and fifty units. We've we've been selling some uh, uh, recently. You know, with the rules changes and uh, interest rates and so on, we were luck- we were there was sort of you know for us it was very much our focus was very much based on the Kiyosaki model on cash flow. So we, we had to buy well. So buying well would see us through for the future. So if there were properties, you know, there were spikes of dips in the market, certainly dips, we were still okay. We were protected because we bought sensibly, bought at good prices. But the focus for us was always on cash flow. So provided the, the properties, you know, generated good cash flow, um, we, we would, we would absolutely commit ourselves to, to, um, to, to, to going for that. And, and acquiring them, so uh, with equity at the end. So what we found was it served as well because whilst the cash flow was great, and over the years that kind of dipped because of legislation, regulation, taxation, which went down. 
the equity price was all we always had retained the equity and we seen a slight growth there. So we were able to cash in, you know, these on these units as we've sold them at the end. So so that's so it, it worked, you know, it worked for us that sort of principle. Okay, but I mean, generally, I would say the UK private rental sector was a great place to be from the 1980s until around 2014, when George Osborne began what's turned into a 10-year vendetta against landlords. And surprise, surprise, the results of all these taxes and regulations is that landlords like you are selling up in their tens of thousands, and now there's a shortage of rental accommodation. So I'd be interested to know what you think the Tory government's rationale was for attacking one of their core constituencies and to what extent it's actually impacted your own portfolio. Well, I mean, I, I find it incredible. I mean, I, I really, I would never have thought that from um, a Tory government, no, I'll be honest with you. And uh, it has just went from uh, bad to worse, uh, really. You know, from uh, we've, we've lived through that period, you know, of, you know, for six years, you know, it was the place to be, and you're absolutely right. You know, almost the next ten years, um, it's uh, it's been tough, and we've been getting driven out of the market. And it's like it doesn't matter what's said; it's just not listened to. You know, it's so we're not being listened to. So we're not personally. We're we're just you know we're not people that are going. To, we're not placard bearers. You know, we're not going to stand outside. You know. Uh, that's not us. We'll just take action. We'll just exit. I mean, it's just, we've demined our business. And quite simply, as most people are doing, the silent majority are just going about their business on when exiting the business now. The numbers simply don't work. It does not make any sense. It is, um, and it doesn't look like, you know, listen, no one's listening. So, that, and so that's what we're finding now. There is a, the silent majority, and there's this ignorance to the fact that this is happening. But again, what, you know, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's even worse, Graham, uh, in Scotland, by the way. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. so we, we, we've, we've, we've seen it. We just, uh, we just go about, we, it's up to us, as it always has been, to mind our own business. Because unfortunately, we're not being listened to. We're not going to change policy. And it's not, I'm not feeling resigned saying that. It just is, you know, it just is. Well, I, I think to me, the, the real worry that underlying this is that there is now pretty much no difference between a supposedly conservative government and, and what you'd expect a Labour government to do. I mean, practically everything bar rent controls and capital controls have been implemented so far. So um, I do wonder, you know, I think most landlords now would feel that they're just disenfranchised. There's no political party that represents their interests. And as you say, well, protest. We're not very good at protesting in this country generally. I think we could learn a bit from the French, actually. But um, you know, the, the the reality is, you know, it's almost like some people call it a uniparty. You know, that, that there's so little difference between the so-called left and right now. You go back a generation. You know, you had Margaret Thatcher versus Michael Foot. Um, and you knew where you stood. You had a clear choice between a, a genuine conservative government and a genuine socialist government, if that was your inclination. Now, it feels to me like we've massively migrated to the left. And people yeah. like us as private landlords are, are, are victims of that culture that they think they can just keep squeezing and squeezing us and it will just accept it somehow. And the reality is, as you say, we'll just vote with our feet. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And uh yeah, I mean, it just, it's one of these things, you know, when you look at the whole political aspect of where do you go? I don't know where you, you know, where you go. We're kind of, 
you're damned, you're damned either way. But that all you can do is to manage your own business, in my view. And like you, see, you know, my, my, you know, uh, it's up to us then, and we will uh, vote with our feet, as you say. Of course, the latest bombshell to hit landlords now is that interest rates, after 15 years of virtually free money, they're finally mm-hmm. starting to revert to their historic mean. And I just wonder, for many folks, will that be the kind of final straw for buy-to-let investing? Well, I think it is. Uh, I think I don't know if it's a final straw. I think you know that everything combined um, is. Uh, has been making it tougher and harder. And I suppose there's been many final straws uh, over over the last uh, few years. But I th- I think the problem is what we've seen. I mean, if you if you've taken out uh, maybe a fixed rate mortgage two years ago when the, the interest rates were at the lowest, and maybe on a three year fixed rate, then you're coming to the end of that now now time now or next year. And the rates plus the bank's margin on top of that, the new stress testing, uh, potential rent controls, absolutely rent controls as in Scotland, and uh, all that come in. You can't actually, you're, you're kind of stuck. So you can go from uh, what is a fixed rate, maybe at 4% or something, jumping up to 9 or 10 one of, one, out of the fixed rate period. And you can't then refinance because of the new uh, stress testing at the level of borrowing that you currently have on your portfolio. So you're having to put in a significant, significant capital amount in order to retain what you've got. So that for, for portfolio landlords is how. So left with a choice, what do you do? You sell it. You, you have to sell it because if you've got a big portfolio, you know, you're going to, you're just going to have to, um, I, I'm, but certainly we've found that, and we've, we, we've had it that we've had tenants that have been with us, Graham, for 15 years, never missed a beat. And just due to these changes and the changes in interest, and you can't just simply remortgage because there's maybe a, because of what I just said, there, stress testing on the new interest rates and the uh, new rules. They, they couldn't even afford if you, if you wanted to, for them to be able just to pay the interest on that on a monthly basis. And some of those properties, and 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 by the way, you can't even do that because there's rent caps in Scotland, for example. So it's so it, that's that's real life. That's genuine. We're not moaning about it. I'm not placarding it. It just simply is. So we are having to work with tenants now because we have to sell that property. And you know, some of these people, like I say, fifteen year tenants never missed a beat. But due to this, the market, the circumstances, and this is a consequence of stuff outside our control not just interest rates but you know legislation you know the regulation around it and the taxation then of course you know there's there's investment requiring those properties to bring epc levels up to certain standard you know uh replace gas boilers and or or, or you know to be, all of that stuff that's coming hmm. over the piece so anybody looking at it from from a business um you know, you're saying is it worth it? And for most, for most, it isn't. You know, it isn't. Not in the traditional buy-to-let um, sense, anyway. No, that's right. And, and it's hard to see any winners from this because obviously the, the landlords now you know, face all these costs and perhaps properties that are falling in value. The tenants lose the access to these properties and they've got to try and find somewhere else to live. So it does feel like a, a complete tale of woe, which 
I also worry a little bit about the state of the commercial property sector, because when you look at the gradual decline in our high streets, you look at working from home, you look at interest rates. We, I mean, our office in Richmond just had a 66% hike in business rates, higher energy costs. Yeah. You know, it's no surprise yeah. that even big companies like HSBC are downsizing from their massive tower block on the uh, Canary Wharf there. You know, so, I mean, what, what issues are you seeing in, in the commercial property sector? And is, is, is that going to become uninvestable as, as yields perhaps inevitably start to decline? Well, I think certainly retail. I mean, retail is not. I mean, that's been declining uh, for, for for well over a decade now, and I I don't see that ever coming back. There's been all these grand initiatives and schemes, and people trying to get involved, save the high street, and, and all that stuff. They're really fighting a losing battle. You know, you're fighting against new technology and the new age and the new the new you know the the, the way that, that people shop and 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 shop online. And, do all that. So that's been coming for a long time. So I don't think that's any surprise uh, there. I think in terms of the other stuff, office building and, and um, you know, industrial, I think, uh, still okay because, and, and dis- distribution and warehousing, you know, you know that still seems to be keeping up uh, as far as we've seen it. We own some commercial property units and um, we, we're actually pretty busy on small offices, you know, small office, you know, easy in, easy out. Uh, type accommodation seems to be fine, but there are some big, big units, big empty units all over the place. And um, I think the commercial market, certain types of commercial properties, uh, I don't know if they'll ever come back again. I'll be honest; they need to be repurposed, uh, um, or I don't know how they how how you regenerate it. But um, yeah, I mean, certainly when it comes to the cost of running these things, um, and the whole. You know, the whole working from home, uh, that's came about from COVID. I mean, so some, some, some of the big banks and stuff, you know, they're, they're, they're way over, way over capacity, uh, for what they need. And the cost of these things are, are bloody huge, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a tricky, tricky market that. Okay, so at what point did you decide to diversify from the property rental market and, and how did you go about doing it? Well, it was a natural thing for us. I mean, property, I mean, real estate was a long-term cash flow. We seen, you know, the way the rules were changing, the the, the world evolving into cleaner energy, um, you know, uh, decarbonisation. We had to decarbonise our own buildings. We had to upgrade them. As a landlord, you knew how expensive and how legislative it was, it was and, and is becoming and will continue to be. We're going to have to continue to upgrade existing stock so it was, and we'd, we'd done developments, you know, we'd done commercial uh, Terezi developments. We'd done a multiple of them over the years. Um, and it was kind of a natural progression for us to go from, you know, owning buildings and converting buildings to, to maintaining and scaling that and looking at how can we decarbonize existing buildings. So, so it was, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't too far away from, what we knew and what we'd done, it was, it's all building and property related. So we, we understood that market. And of course, when you look at the potential in the, certainly in the decarbonization and um, the clean energy that is going to be required for housing, you know, it's one of the largest polluters of carbon, you know, housing and property, you know, uh, going. So that, that, that has to come down. And we just felt, you know, we should be in that market. So if you like, 
it was, you know, we we, we we could see what was happening the other side of the fence. They're mm-hmm. dealing with contractors and, and, and developers, and we were on the receiving end of how expensive it was and was getting and how legislative we weren't going to get away from that. It was just natural that we would be on the other side of that that fence. So to go acquiring uh, building services and existing companies that were uh, operating in that field and had the potential to evolve into cleaner energy as the technology and you know the rules of like, uh, change. And uh, we wanted to be in that sector, so it was it's kind of an easy transition in that respect for the building services side. Okay, but I, I think uh, a lot of that was done through acquisition, and as we both yeah. know, M and A can be fraught with difficulties. You got you've got different agendas. People can't agree realistic valuations, or they don't like the idea of joining a a larger group. So how do you go about managing those sort of tensions when you're looking to acquire a business? Well, it's tricky. You know, there's no doubt about it. Um, you've just got to keep at it, though. You know, it, it, we, we, you know we've, we've uh, uh, you know, spoken to companies and they've came back to us four or five years later. You know, they went, you know, they had a valuation up there, completely unrealistic. And they, you know, they came back to us, you know, four years later, and we, you kind of get some sort of sensible and, and reasonableness, um, uh, and you can then do a transaction. Or there's some people, some businesses come to you in distress. Again, we've we've had our finger, fingers burnt there, where you know we've maybe rushed through a deal that we shouldn't have. So there's, you know, it, it, it still ha- it definitely has its challenges. But there are, like everything else in every market, good and bad no matter what the financial market is, there are opportunities to be had and some great opportunities. So um, we just like to be active and just keep moving forward, um, really. So, and once you get in, into the M&E side of it, I like it. You know, I, I, I really enjoy that. You know, it's a numbers game. You're not going to win them all. You know, most of them you won't win. But the ones that you do get, and if you're successful on, they really are, you know, for me, they're worth it. They're worth uh, uh, and and they can form part of a very clear and bigger picture if you're looking to do a consolidation with a potential exit at, at the end. So I really enjoy the business uh, environment more so than the property. Interesting, yeah, because I mean, your, your business empire has now become a lot larger and more international. Is there a sort of overarching strategy that helps you decide what sectors you want to be involved in and which particular companies you want to buy? Margin, you know, um, we like to keep, you know, over the years we've learned that uh, we want to keep close to the big numbers. So stay, you know, the, 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 the higher the margin. So we look at higher margin type businesses because we've operated in lower margin businesses and it's very, very tough. So again, this has just been stuff that we've learned over the year. So margin, which, so if you look at margins, 30, 40% gross margins at 30, 40% or 30% plus or 40% plus, that then determines the sectors. So if you keep to the numbers first, it'll determine the sector. So healthcare is one, you know, IT, AI, um, you know, uh, uh, are good cleaning green technology, uh, technology and energy. Again, so it keeps us when you keep it to the margin level and a minimum company size level. So dependent on the sector, you know, we're not looking at mom and pop businesses. We're looking where there's a clear track record, clear history, good profit over a number of years, and it's maybe just they've maybe just stuck, got stuck. You know, they've got huge scope to grow, but 
the management team that they have there just don't have the wherewithal and uh, time, if you like, to do that. So they're our sort of, they're, they're the sweet spot type businesses for us in any new sector we look at. And, you know, that could be anywhere in the world, really, because, and what, what we like to do is to partner with, uh, so if we're doing business in the US or Spain, we will partner with local people down there that have the same philosophy, the same vision, the same view as us, in order to grow that. So we will be involved in it, but we very much partner. We're a partnership business. So we work with partners, local partners in those countries. But but the, the, the principles are very much the same, you know. And um, if they don't align, it never works, Graham. Well, it certainly hasn't for us. No, but 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 obviously that thinking about margins, and I think there's a bit of Kiyosaki cash flow in there somewhere. Um, you know that that's taking you into all sorts of different sectors. Now, normally when when I speak to people who are trying to do this kind of what sometimes gets called an agglomeration model of bringing a lot of smaller businesses together to make one big one that gets a higher valuation multiple, they tend to be in the same sector, but you're, you sound like you're building a, a multi-sector business, all with high margins, but is, is there an end game there as to how, you, how you'd how you exit these multi-sector businesses? Well, we wouldn't, they would be exited separately. So you have, you'll have, you know, you'll have a healthcare group, you'll have a, you know, clean energy group. So these, obviously they don't mix, but but they're, they're, they're and that keeps the focus then on uh, on each part. So we keep them separate, but you'll have healthcare over here, you know, clean energy over there, maybe AI or IT over there. So, and, and to be honest with you, it's, you're always buying and selling. So for us, it, there's no end to this. It is, you know, we'll probably sell a healthcare group first off, but who knows, market conditions, you know, man plans, God laughs, you know, <laughs> you know, the offer comes in for this part over here. So, it, uh, for us, we're because we're working with industry experts, and we're but the actual principles. And again, we just learned this over the years. You know, we went from uh, you know property to MRE in the building services side, and we said, "Well, we really like this MRE stuff. You know, wouldn't it be good to evolve into other sectors? What what have we got? We don't have to be the expert in the sector. We have people on our team on our board that are the expert in that sector in that country that see that opportunity." that present it to us and say, right, okay, yeah, yeah, we like this, or, you know, most of them, you know, we don't. Yeah, you know, so that's just, but it's, it's just going through that process. Now, I'd, I'd imagine that in, in, you know, acquiring companies at the pace that you are, a little bit similar to acquiring a lot of properties, you must get to a point where you need quite substantial funding for that. Um, how, how do you fund these deals? And is it through bank funding or is it through private investors? Or- it's mainly through private investment, and we do do some commercial lending, but it's tough. It's uh, it's doable. You know, everything's doable. It's tougher and it's slower, which is the most uh, frustrating part of it. It's 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 how it, it's how um, it, it depends on deal to deal and and what the opportunity is. But it's a mixture of commercial debt and um, uh, private funds. Okay, yeah, we'll have to have a talk about that. Perhaps we can get involved in some of these projects with you. Um, uh-huh. now- Apart from us both having the same name and both being born in Scotland, uh, we've got something else in common in that uh, we've both gone to somewhere that offers sunnier climes and lower taxes. In, in my case, it's Portugal. In your case, it's Dubai. So tell me a bit about the, the drivers behind the, the relocation and, and how you're settling into your new home. 
Well, we've been here two and a half years now. And um, yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're settled. I mean, I, we, we love it here. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing city. It's an amazing place to live. Um, clearly the benefits, you know, from a tax point of view, uh, that's that's huge. But, uh, you know, that that was a driver, clearly, and as coming here, we looked at other areas. But what we found here was it, our business, our mindset, just, just the way that we live our life now is very much uh, looking globally. So we have a we have a wider view of the world and of the business world just by being based here. But when we were in the UK, it was very much... That was the center of gravity. That was the center of the universe. And it was very difficult sometimes to, to see beyond, you know, where we were. You're from there. We lived there. Our families here and all that stuff. What, what we've really found is one of the biggest benefits here because of the diverse nature of, um, the people that live here, the, the number of different nationalities. And, you know, it's, uh, the environment that we're in here is very pro business, ambitious, um, hustling, you know, energetic. We love that, and we're you know we're at the we're at the age um, where we 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 thrive on that. It makes things it makes things really uh, really interesting and invigorating invigorating for us. We also like the fact that we're uh, again as workaholics. You know, we like the fact we're three three or four hours ahead, depending on the time of year. So we've we've added an extra three or four hours to our working day. To our day, it feels like that we can get so much more done. So. Again, when we're looking at different areas to live, my wife's always fancied the US. I think we will go there because we have some interests uh, there at some point. But at this moment in time, you know, that was because you're five hours or if you're on the West Coast, maybe eight hours from the UK. But we're three hours ahead always. So we are up and at it. I don't think my team like it too much because certainly when it goes to four hours, we are up early anyway. You know, I'm twitching. Are you up yet? You know, I need to talk to you. You talk. <laughs> no, so, I, I have uh, to say, yeah. I agree. The, the 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 whole Middle East is is got so much happening at the moment. It's such an entrepreneurial buzz there. We we are actually Beaufort's in the process of setting up an office in Abu Dhabi later this year. Uh, we're uh-huh. just seeing so much opportunity there. Uh, and in in Saudi as well, uh, you just can't ignore it. And and my my message to investors is that you have to treat the world as your chessboard these days. You can't be yeah. too parochial. You know, most Brits have got far too much money invested in the UK and very little anywhere else. Um, and yet, you know, most of the things that are happening now, sadly, uh, are outside of the UK. And and I would argue perhaps the Middle East is even more entrepreneurial now than America. Um, you know, so so I think it's a great place to be. And as you say, you add in the tax benefits. Um, for me, the Portuguese climate's a little bit more manageable than the Dubai one. Um, but yeah. uh, as long as you've got your aircon flat and your aircon car, I guess you'll be okay. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, hats off to you for having the you know the courage to do that because it's you know a lot of people talk mm. about these things, but not that many people actually take action. So you've obviously gone ahead yeah. and done that. So um, you, you also run a sort of family office for your own private investments for the longer term future. Mm. I just wonder what what kind of assets you're, you're you're attracted to for for the family investments above and beyond what you're doing in the business world. Well, most of it is in the business world. You know, we we there's a couple of other uh, um, projects that we're working on that um, I'm hoping come off. And well, actually, imminent might even be today. I'm hoping we've been working on something over in the US, which is a bit a bit out of uh, out of our normal scope of uh, investment interest. But something 
that we're, we're, we're very interested in. But I'll, I'll tell you about the next time, uh, hopefully. So, But in the main, it's focusing on the type of opportunities that we get presented with from a business point of view uh, throughout the world. So most of our time now is spent interacting with people uh, from where we're getting opportunities from Australia to the US to South America, you know, Europe, uh, Asia. We're getting this and, and being based here in Dubai uh, allows us to, you know, look left and right, you know, whereas before we all we had was straight on, you know. So that's what, so, so we look at it and, and there's been some, some real crazy stuff that uh, we've been presented with that have been really interesting and enjoyable and we need to come out of, because remember, coming from the UK and we're so conditioned, we've got to relearn and to be a bit more, be more open and uh, to, than, than what we were used to back there. So we've had, we've had to spend that time um, broadening our horizons and uh, taking the blinkers off and uh, we can't. Okay, now I know you've also uh, become very active on on social media. You you, you do your own uh, TV programs with some high profile guests. I I saw you on GB News the other week. Um, do you, do you find that that investing time and resources into your own personal profile is that helping you to attract the right kind of business opportunities as well? I think it does. It's very difficult to um, proper properly um, engage. Uh, gauge that, but I, you know, the fact that you've seen it, Graham, and, uh, and and all that stuff, it does, it does. You know, I, I think it's well worth it. It's well worthwhile. Um, I think we've got, you know, when you get to a certain level, people, you know, kind of want to hear what you've got to say. I think that's important as well. We're we're certainly nobody's guru, but we just do what we do, and I think um, uh, for us, it's allowed us. If I look at uh, the people that we are connected to, the people that we are involved in, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we were just uh, just a wee guy from the Highlands of Scotland, you know, ultimately. And we've just worked our way up doing what we do and making loads of mistakes along the way. But but we're in a position now, you know, we live in Dubai, we've got, we've got billionaire friends, we've got people connections uh, all over the world at a high level of entrepreneurs. And that's exactly where we wanted to be. And we'll keep going at that because we want to keep growing as people. And uh, so I, I can only say it, it's been successful, but it's very hard and difficult to measure that uh, the, the, that that part of it. But um, if I measure it in you know, where we are now, I think it's been a success. And, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, no, and it's also it's you know people people look for inspiration, they look for role models, and they think, well, you know, if, if they could do it, maybe I can. So it's great to yeah. to share that story, and I, I I hope at some point there'll be an autobiography coming along because I think you've got quite a backstory <laughs> that would be worth uh, telling yeah. and worth reading. So um, you also get involved a bit in the, in philanthropy, and I recently saw you climbing Mount Everest. What what was the motivation mm. behind? Uh, Zooming up to base camp, but however, however many thousand <laughs> meters that was. Yeah, well, um, like you know, we, we like to do stuff. Uh, we've been doing stuff every year for for either uh, JDRF, which is the uh, Junior Diabetes Research uh, Foundation in, in the in the UK and US. Our daughter was diagnosed when she was eight; she's thirteen now with uh, type one diabetes, uh, and it was a it was a virus she picked up, and because uh, we've none of that in our, our family, so. So that was something clearly because because of, of uh, her condition that we wanted to get involved in that. 
Um, so the, we we done that uh, every so we we kind of do something once a year, and um, uh, that was really good. Obviously, being here in Dubai, Everest isn't as far, it's far, but it's not as far on a flight. You know, it was four hours or something up to Nepal, uh, but rather than going from the UK. So um, that was uh, that was good. You know, I I love those treks and hikes than Kilimanjaro, and and, and uh, I've done I've done base camp before actually, and I've done Mira Peak, and which Mira Peak's the highest one in the, the Himalayas you can do without oxygen. And actually, when COVID came and the world went into lockdown, I was at, we were one night from the top. We were one night, and nobody knew. I mean, we were the safest place in the world. You know, there was only 11 of us. We were up there. We hadn't seen anybody. Then I got a text message saying, you know, the world's going into lockdown. You better get back. And what, you know, what are you talking about? So I ended up having to get a helicopter off and another helicopter. Anyway, so that was an interesting one. We nearly never made it back, but uh, we, we we made it. Um, so you know, we've all, I've all, I, I love those types of those types of things for a great cause as well. And of course, the Codwell children. You know, uh, uh, I you know I think John, John and Modest are you know fantastic people. The charity, a wonderful charity, and. Um, it's one of the ones that's out of, it's so transparent, you know, all of the money goes to the children rather than getting eaten up in admin costs and expenses, all of it. John covers all of that cost himself. So everything raised. So that to me is, is fundamental um, when we're when we're doing that. And of course we do other sort of smaller charities as well, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great feeling being able to contribute and help and, uh, and do that. Brilliant. Well, incredibly, we're already coming to the end of our time together, uh, Graham. So I suppose my final uh, question would be, what what kind of advice would you offer to any entrepreneurs who are listening to us that, that really you think would be the, the key to being successful in the particular environment we now find ourselves in in the 2020s? From all the lessons you've learned, the mistakes you've made, the successes you've had, what would you suggest that people really need to focus on? Well, solving problems. You know, it's the world at the moment and, and, and is full of problems. If you can solve the problem, and the reason I say that, look, I'm, I'm never going to be the Apple guy or the Facebook guy or, uh, you know, Elon, I, because I don't have that creativity mind. But what I do have is I can see a world full of problems that require solutions, whether that's housing solutions, you know, clean energy solutions and all that. I can see, you can identify that. Most people are running away or complaining or moaning about it. You know, relish the problem because therein lies the opportunity. Don't be fearful of that. I look for problems because that's an opportunity to solve. You know, I hear all this stuff in, the, in debates. I'm like, I don't really want to get involved in the debates. And particularly, you know, you know work, working from home, should you be able to work from home and all that stuff. And you're getting this debate. What's your thoughts now? You know, at the end of the day, what does it matter? Uh, for me, let them work from home. Let them go and walk their dog. Let them go and take a tea break and, and turn up you know, in their pajamas and, and, and take a couple hours off to visit their, 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 their auntie down the road. While they're doing that, take advantage of that. I'm going to take advantage of that because my team are going to be in the office and we're going to be working and hustling and taking advantage. So good, good for them. You know, so anyway. That's just my view. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's, that's great advice to end on and, and a lot of lessons to learn. Thanks for sharing them with us today. Graham Carling, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Graham. Thanks for listening. 
If you qualify as a high net worth investor because you earn more than £100,000 a year or you have an investment portfolio of £250,000 or more outside your main home and pension, you can join our investor community free of charge at BeauftPrivateEquity.com.